Hi, I'm Maddie. Hi, I'm Cullen. We are going to discuss The Shoemaker and the Tea Party, Part 1, pages 1 through 84 by Young. So this is essentially a biography of George Robert Twelves Hughes, and we're going to be talking about the different areas in which his life took place, uh, beginning in Boston and ending up in New York. So basically in that region uh, from 1742 to 1840. Several times throughout this biography and story, we're going to see major clashes within the social hierarchy seen through the eyes of George Hughes. During the time prior to the Revolutionary War, during the Revolutionary War, as well as afterwards, and we're going to see how he developed throughout his time from a child who was really rebellious to a hero in the end. And moving forward, we are going to take turns on each chapter, discuss the main points, the main themes, everything that happens that he brought up to the biographers. And afterwards, we are going to have small discussions to point out the key things, the key themes, and a lot of, some of our opinions about what happened and go on from there. So the first chapter is called A Man in His 90s. To begin this podcast, we wanted to begin with a little information on what we know about Mr. Hughes. So he was discovered by James Hawks by an accidental concurrence of events. James Hawks is thought to be a journalist, which is probably how he found George Hughes. Hawks took everything down as Hughes spoke it, making it very similar to an oral history. He did not fact check anything. Meanwhile, Benjamin Bussey Thatcher was more of a storyteller. He wrote the second biography about Hughes. He did things a little differently by editorializing and adding dialogue. Based off of this, we know that the excerpt at the beginning was from Thatcher's book. When both of these authors found him, they were amazed at his health and his intelligence. He was well into his 90s, and they believed him to be a much younger person than what, they, than what he actually was, because he was not the stereotypical old man with white hair and memory deficiency. One thing that was noted about him was his intelligence, because he was able to remember names of people who were involved in specific events during the Revolutionary War. The second chapter is titled A Boston Childhood. In 1756, Hughes was apprenticed as a shoemaker when he was 14 years old. This is at first hard to understand because the idea of being a shoemaker was almost repulsive. It basically meant that even if you wanted to climb the social ladder, there was no way of actually having the means of doing so. Shoemakers were notorious for being poor and their prospects were worsening. This was shown in the statistic that from 1756 to 1775, Eight of the 13 shoemakers that died and left a will did not own their own home. And unfortunately, this was also a fate that awaited Hughes. So the next part that I'm going to go over is uh, discussing basically a short history of Hughes's family and kind of understanding how he was kind of forced into being a shoemaker. So. His grandfather was born in 1674, and it was a landowner near Rhode Island. His son, George's father, also named George, was born in 1701. His mother, Abigail Seaver, was born in 1711 and grew up near Boston near the Neck. Her ancestors were farmers. 
Abigail and George were married in 1728. His father was a tanner. On August 25, 1742, George Robert Twelves Hughes was born. He was named George after his father, Robert after a paternal uncle, and Twelve most likely came from his grandmother, another Abigail, whose main name was Twelves. He was the sixth of nine children, writing the statistic that both Taylor and LaCour said was the standard for the number of children at that time. He was also the fourth of seven sons. Unfortunately, only five of the nine children survived. George had three older brothers, Samuel, Solomon, and Shubail. He also had a younger brother named Daniel. Hughes grew up under the sign of a bull's head along Water Street near the docks in Southend. George had short and long jeans. He was short in stature, being only 5'1", and lived to an old age. Another part of his childhood was money. So it wasn't really a problem while he was growing up because they had enough money to buy a slave. But when his father bought a third of a tannery and could not afford it, he had his brother, what we know as Uncle Robert, uh, to step in and help pay for that. When that failed, they had to turn to a wealthy Tory to help with that. When his father could not pay the credit back and the relationship soured, he was sent to debtor's prison two separate times. He was also had a lot of tragedy in his life. In 1749, two siblings died, as well as his father. His mother died in 1755, and in 1756, his grandfather died. Essentially, due to this, he was kind of forced into being an apprentice, um, specifically being a shoemaker, because he lacked not only the bronze and the height of being any other apprentice, um, but he also lacked the connections and the monetary needs to have a better trade. Chapter 3, titled The Apprentice, gives us several stories of when George was a rebellious child when he was young. And he viewed his mother as a figure that punished him and enforced the rules. There were several stories in which George was sent to several different schools for acting up. His mom even sent him to live with his uncle. One of the stories when he was in a dame school, a teacher put him in a closet for acting up and he literally dug his way out. Then the teacher put him back into the closet and he found marmalade and started eating it all. That's just one of the many examples I can give that the book shows us of how rebellious George was as a kid. The next part of the chapter gives us a take when George was an apprentice for a shoemaker and living with George in the shoemaker's basement was another apprentice named John Gilbert. Throughout the time, these two saw plenty of opportunities to be rebellious themselves. At one point, they stole an apple from a farmer during Boston's Holiday for Apprentices on Pope's Day, November 5th. But the farmer ended up letting him go. It wasn't a big issue. At some point, George and the other apprentice attempted to leave their apprenticeship and join the military. The book isn't too sure if this was in the 1750s, it could have been 1760. However, John Gilbert, the other apprentice, was accepted to the military. However, George was not. George was 5'1", he was not tall enough, 
He even tried to join the Navy afterwards, after he was turned on by the Army, and his brothers stopped him. They prevented him from doing so. At one point, the shop that George was an apprentice at burned down, and George was forced to apprentice himself as a shoemaker. After he started to get paid for his shoemaking, he gave his old master some money when he saw his old master was going to leave to Nova Scotia. He was dirt poor, and this shows us George's generosity and kindness behind this action. Chapter 4, titled The Shoemaker, started with George while he was still living in Boston. He managed to get his own shop for his shoemaking. At one point, he got married to the daughter of a sexton and a washer. And there wasn't too much details on his success as a shoemaker, except that it was clear he was still poor. At one point, he caught himself in debtor's prison, and we're not too sure who bailed him out. Throughout his time in Boston prior to the Revolutionary War, there was no evidence that he was very religious or participated in government events or civil events. So he was not too active in the city of Boston prior to the Revolutionary War. Chapter five is titled The Massacre. In this next chapter, we'll cover the three main events that surrounded the Boston Massacre. The first was the murder of Christopher Cedar. He was murdered 10 days before the massacre, picketing the shop of someone who violated the anti-import resolutions. The second event was the fight that occurred between some off-duty soldiers looking for work. We read about this in one of the primary sources earlier this semester. The Boston Massacre was the third event that occurred. He was claimed to be on the ground among the people protesting. When Captain Preston said that they needed to go home, Hughes claims they were in the King's Highway and has had as good a right to be there. Hughes also claimed to know four of the victims and helped carry Caldwell to the doctor after he was shot. Hughes also claimed to be among the throng of the people who were involved in the massacre gathering that occurred the next day at the Old South Church. Hughes confused the time of this meeting and thought that it occurred that very night. Hughes actually went home that night and armed himself with a cane. Several soldiers stopped him in the street and told him that he and he told them that he was upset that one of his townsmen was shot. They forced the cane out of his hand. After the fight, Hughes claimed to be at the trial and gave testimony to the fact that he could not see the captain's lips in motion when the order was given to fire. This next chapter discusses the Tea Party. On December 16, 1773, Hughes volunteered for the Tea Party. The Tea Party was organized by radical Whig leaders in Boston. They mapped everything out, planning who would guard the companies when they reached the wharf. Joshua Wyatt, the blacksmith, verified Hughes' story by saying it was proposed that young men, not much known in town and not liable to be easily recognized, should lead in the business, and that most of the persons selected for the occasion were apprentices and journeymen as was the case with myself, living with Tory Masters. He also said that they had but a few hours warning of what was intended to be done. Those that were better known disguised themselves as Indians. The common men lightly disguised themselves. He said his face and hands were daubed with coal dust in the shop of the blacksmith. 
Hughes was singled out to become an officer and act as a boatswain once he reached the port. They were then ordered to open the crates of tea and throw them overboard. They were able to do this within three hours and quietly went back to their houses. The armed British ships didn't, nearby did not do anything to prevent any of this. Thatcher was skeptical about John Hancock being there, but believed the fact that Hughes was one of the men in charge. Thompson Maxwell, another participant, made Hancock a delivery earlier that day and was asked to go to the wharf. I went accordingly, joined the band under one of Captain Hughes. We mounted the ships and made tea in a trice. This done, I took my team and went home, as any honest man should. It did not seem impossible that Hughes was the captain that Thompson Maxwell discussed. When the party had ended, Hughes noticed that Captain O'Connor, someone Hughes knew, was filling his coat with tea. He told the captain what happened, and they seized him to prevent him from escaping. They fought, and when O'Connor recognized him, he threatened to turn Hughes in, but Hughes warned that you had better make your will first. O'Connor escaped, and the next day they hung the skirt of his coat on the whipping post in Charleston, with a label to shame him of popular indignation. In chapter seven, titled Tar and Feathers, we were able to see George's interaction with John Malcolm. In January 25th of 1774, George Hughes witnessed John Malcolm threatening a boy who was probably doing work for Malcolm with a large stick. At this point, George tried to get him to not beat the boy, but in return, after exchanging a few words, Malcolm struck George in the head. George left with his wounds and got an arrest warrant for John Malcolm because he assaulted him. Later that night, a crowd of people, basically a mob, took Malcolm from his home and took justice into their own hands. They tarred and feathered him, took him to a liberty tree, and told him to swear that he would never hold any other inconsistent with the liberties with this country. They threatened to hang him and beat him if he did not do so. Afterwards, they sent him home. Hughes claims that he wanted just to bring Malcolm to court and not have a mob decide his fate. That's why he went for an arrest warrant and not for a crowd of people. Afterwards, George believed that Malcolm had been taught his lesson. In chapter eight titled The Patriot, we were able to see some more major changes that occurred in Boston, such as people's social and economic status, not really mattering all too much in terms of the revolution. Those people with lower statuses, such as George Hughes, were able to have a great impact in local politics and local issues, which changed what it had been in British society for years. Page 56, George Hughes said, I am as good as any man, regardless of rank or wealth. In this chapter, we are also able to see why Hughes went to war and participated in 1776. He said he saw the unwarrantable sufferings inflicted on citizens of Boston by the usurpation and tyranny of Great Britain. That was on page 55. During this time frame, when he participated in the war, George gained a new sense of self-worth and citizenship, 
that he earned during his time of fighting. At the end of this chapter, Hughes also positively affirms that Samuel Adams and John Hancock were both at the Boston Tea Party, destroying tea with them. Thatcher was slightly skeptical that John Hancock actually participated in the event, but due to Hughes' knowledge of what event and what he, John Hancock actually looked like, this could be very possible. If it was, then this shows a new sign of equality in class. A poor shoemaker, such as George Hughes, was in the same event, doing the same exact thing, committing illegal actions with a rich merchant of John Hancock. They were breaking the law together. This shows a new change in the social structure. Two people who normally would not have any interactions with each other are fighting together in the revolution, committing crimes and working together. Chapter 9 was titled Soldier and Sailor. George Hughes was a very adamant patriot, and throughout this chapter, we kind of see that balance, though, um, between being devoted to his family and to his country. So when Boston was invaded by the British following Lexington and Concord, he sent his family to rent them, and he ended up sneaking off after about nine weeks in occupation um, on a Tory boat. Um, the Committee of Safety took him to Washington, and this is likely to have occurred because Washington was planning on invading Boston, so it's likely that he would love to hear about intelligence of the area. The one error in this section was the fact that Martha Washington apparently waited on them. She was known to not have been there at the time, however. Hughes eventually made it to Rentham and enlisted as a privateer in 1776. This lasted for about three months. He brought back some booty, but it was nothing worth bragging about. When he returned, he served in the militia from anywhere between one to three months, and then again in August 1778 for a month. In February of 1779, he served as a privateer, which made about $80,000 after stealing from some Tory passengers on a ship. He was promised $250 of it, but he never received any of it. In 1780 and 1781, he served in the militia from July to October in both years. He was ended up serving a total of 20 months, less than what the Continentals served with an average of 33 months. Something that should be noted is that privateering was very popular when Hughes did it. Abigail Adams noted that there was a rage for it in Boston. And when Hughes was in the militia, he mostly guarded the coast. Though a strong patriot, there was a balance he had maintained with his family and providing for them, so this caused him to withdraw several times, which would explain why he only served a couple months over a couple of years. And then he was later drafted in the war, and he had to pay for a substitute because he wanted to be with his family. So that was kind of an interesting part to see in which he wanted to serve, but he had to also balance that life of being with his family. Chapter 10 is titled Family Man. The biographers that looked at Hughes's life said very little between 1783 and 1815. We know that he stayed in Rentham and had a very large family. 
After 1812, he moved to Otsego County, New York, and it was assumed that he was an agriculture or mechanics. Legal documents refer to him in 1796 and 1797 as being a yeoman and in 1810 as a corps and most likely a farmer. Basically, Hughes came out of the war poor and stayed poor. And he did not return to Boston because he said, the shop which I built in Boston, I lost. British troops appropriated for the purpose of Wash and Lumber House and eventually pulled it down and burnt it up. His uncle was dead and his brothers remained in Boston. He did not own property for a very long time following the war. It wasn't until 1810 that he finally became a property holder in Alleworth. He was a co-owner with 18 other people. It was basically a burying yard for people. He had 15 children, and we know 11 of their names. He had three girls and eight boys. Six were born in, were born by 1781, and the rest were born by 1796 at the latest. They were named after various members of their family, and he even named one 11, and then the 15th of his children was named George Robert 1215. So basically we know that he had a sense of humor. And Young quoted on page 69, perhaps the only inheritance a poor shoemaker, farmer, seaman could guarantee, especially to his 11th and 15th children, was a name that would be a badge of distinction as his had been. In 1812, we know that he also tried to enlist in the Navy but was turned down. And there was a whole like story about him even trying to go and enlist John Adams' support, but we don't know if that's actually factual, but something interesting to consider. On chapter 11, titled Veteran, we are able to see George's later years after the Revolution. In his later years, he lived in Richfield Springs, a town that was 65 miles west of Albany, New York. He was once again a shoemaker. He lived with his son and his wife. But gradually, as time went on, George's family members started to die, including his wife, who died at the age of 77. Once his wife died, he continued to move around a little bit. He was always with his children or friends, who all had poverty of their own to deal with. So it was tough to take care of George. At this time, George also applied for a military pension, and eventually he got one. They only recorded that he served for 16 months and 15 days, which is less than the two-year requirement for a full pension. At this time, George started to recognize how much has changed in Boston, so age becomes much more of a factor in this point of his life. He talked about how much Boston has changed, including the childhood places he grew up, this chapter also shows us when George became a Methodist. He started to attend Saturday Methodist Church, and these teachings were very welcoming to someone of the poor population. The warm atmosphere of Christian fellowship, the stress on sobriety and industriousness, the Franklin virtues that he was raised on were also part of the teachings, and the promise of salvation, no matter the rank or wealth. Which is huge, because this is one of the themes that we have constantly seen it throughout the book. In chapter 12, titled Hero, we're able to see the time frame in which George was able to see fame. After James Hawks 
published a retrospect of the Boston Tea Party in 1834. George was able to see, seek a lot of fame. He was ignored by most before it was published, and now he was loved by all. On his trip to Boston, he was treated as a celebrity. He was even a featured guest. After he spent some time down in Boston, he continued to travel, most of the time just to see family, but everywhere he went, people wanted to meet him. And everyone seemed to be surprised about his age and great physical condition, as well as his good mood. On 1835, Thatcher's biography of George appeared, and five years later, as he was getting into a carriage, the horses ran. This seriously injured him, and a little bit later, on November 5th, he passed away. This was once the National Bostonian Day for Apprentices, Hope's Day. He was buried with his wife at a Presbyterian cemetery. In 1896, his remains were exhumed and moved ceremoniously to the Grand Army of the Republic, plot in Lakewood Cemetery in Richfield Springs. His tombstone now read, George Hughes, one who helped drown the tea in Boston, 1770, died November 5th, 1840, aged 109 years and two months. The book closed with, it is the pride of a citizen, of one who would not take his hat off to any man. The apprentice who had once deferred to John Hancock lived with the memory that Hancock had toiled side by side with him, throwing tea chests into Boston Harbor. The man who had deferred to British officers, royal officials, and colonial gentry had lived to see General Washington ship captains, and now lieutenant governors, educated lawyers, and writers defer to him. As you can see throughout this biography and story, George challenged the social hierarchy in the colonies as well as Boston, and this was the major theme throughout the entire novel. A shoemaker Toiled with a rich merchant, was able to fight through the revolution, see poverty, see fame, and lived a very long life for all of us to read about. Maddie and I both have some questions for anyone listening to the podcast. The first one, do you think that it's possible that George Hughes actually participated in each of these events he brought up to his biographers? If not, which ones were false and why? With the exception of the clash between the classes in the social hierarchy, what other major themes can you draw from this biography? And based on his life, would you call him a hero? What argument could you make to not call him a hero?